on your podcast. It's me going. Deanna, please do please not sing. Please do not sing. I know I sing too much. I'm I know not saying I, it. I'm whatever. Not, I know I do, it. and it's always the same song, and it's fine, and we're good, and we're happy. It's a trademark. <laughs> it's my trademark. That's it's your trademark. That song must be like some universal archetype. It's a song in my heart, Mom. It's, it's just got to be free. Apparently, apparently so. <laughs> Um, let's do this thing, shall we? Let's do it. Are you a good witch or a bad bitch, bad bitch, bad bitch? I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh, if this naughty to rules your list, shake your shoulders, shake your hips, and let a lady confess I want to be bad. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. Welcome, everybody, to another week of Good Witches, Bad Bitches. And this is a very, very special episode because today we have a guest host. And the guest host is my mother. Say hi, Mommy. Hi, witches. <laughs> uh, her name is Raina, and she, as is implied by the name, is a queen. And we are going to be educated today about a fabulous, fabulous... Good witch, bad bitch. What would you classify her? Oh, as? she's definitely a good witch. Good witch. Got there's it. no, there's no bad bitchery here. Right. None. All right. But uh, first, let's uh, let's open up. I have this little article from Jezebel that I thought was very appropriate because you and I were having this conversation this morning about Hemingway and like the sort of toxic male authors of the era that they were just they drank too much and they withheld their emotions and they died young and and they are seen as geniuses in their own right but that sort of archetype of masculinity is not really applicable anymore you know what i mean it never was healthy it no was it never was never healthy thing. but it was kind of more revered at the time yeah and there's still like yes. bro, dude bros today who are like, yeah, I'm a really tortured artistic soul. I love Steinbeck and Hemingway and all these authors and blah, blah. and but it's fine. But there's a very specific type. You know what I mean. Mm. So this article from Jezebel headline says, according to his ex-wife's memoir, John Steinbeck was an awful womanizing asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Color me unsurprised. Although it's sad because there's that Steinbeck quote that's really applicable to life today where he mentions the fact that, I'm going to misquote it, but um, socialism never took root in America because every American sees themselves as a millionaire down on their luck. Mm-hmm. And, and he that's a great quote, and I think that that's very true even to today. Like, for some reason, these people who would benefit, I think, from some more socialist governing, they think that it's not in their interest. You know what I mean? Right. Don't take my money. Don't take, don't, it's, it's, don't maybe pay taxes. Right. Right. So, okay. But Steinbeck apparently was not great to women. Um, author John Steinbeck is revealed to have been a, quote, sadistic man and serial womanizer in the newly unearthed memoir of his second wife, Gwen Conjure Steinbeck. Quote, like so many writers, he had several lives and in each he was spoiled and in each he felt he was king. Conjure Steinbeck wrote in her memoir reported on by The Guardian which spans the years 1943 to 1948. Quote, from the time John awoke to the time he went to bed, I had to be his slave. That's nice. Yikes. Um, the two met when Steinbeck was still married to his first wife, Classy. Mm. And during their wedding night, he spent over an hour, his, his wedding night to his new wife, uh, he spent over an hour talking to his alleged mistress on the phone. So he already had a new mistress in the wings? Yes. So it's like he had his Classy. first wife, he met his second wife, and it was presumably his second wife was like right hot on the tails. And already when he married his second wife, their wedding night, he was talking to his new mistress. Great. Who he allegedly met with three times a week. And he didn't just treat Conjure Steinbeck horribly, he did so to their children as well. When she experienced complications during a pregnancy, he cried that she had complicated his writing life. <laughs> And after their son, John Jr., was born prematurely, Condra Steinbeck alleges that her husband said, quote, I wish to Christ he'd die. He's taking up too much of your fucking time. Oh, stellar. <laughs> the reason this is all coming to light now is that even though the memoir first began in the 1970s when ghostwriter Douglas Brown interviewed Condra Steinbeck, Brown passed away in the 1990s. 
After the manuscript was passed along to Brown's brother, a neighbor named Bruce Lawton found it and is now publishing it. So in case you needed to add one more famous man to your abusive loser pile, here's a good one to throw on. It's just, it's very upsetting to me how horribly these dudes treated their children and their wives and... Like, what was the deal then? I think there's something about genius. It's like, I'm a genius, so this entitles me to have this license. Yeah, to treat you like shit. And it's like what Hannah and I have talked about on the podcast, the the, thank you for typing hashtag that Hannah brought up, where the wives would just carry so much of the burden of that because he was like, well, I'm working on my book. Can you type it up and also take care of the kids and also take care of the house? Because I'm busy thinking of things that are genius. Just got released on Friday on Jezebel. Oh, wow. And we were literally talking about it this morning. So when I'm perusing mm-hmm. and. <sighs> anyway. 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 Who are we going to talk about this week, Mom? We're going to jump into the lady already? We're going to jump into the lady. Unless, Ben, you think we have something else we need to talk about. No. This is your podcast. It's our, it's our podcast <laughs> today. Well, okay. So um, you're going to tell me about a woman this that is, when I started this podcast, yes. you said you should talk about her. I've been bugging you and bugging you. Please talk about this lady because I'm a photographer and a fine artist, and this is probably my favorite photographer. And sh- and nobody knows So her. then who's more appropriate to talk about her? When this opportunity arose, Hannah is out of town, and you're in town. And so we all sat down and had a chat, and I was like, you know what? I think my mom should talk about her favorite artist because you're going to do her more justice than I would anyway. I would think so. So let's do it. Okay. Well, I am going to tell you about Berenice Abbott. Berenice Abbott. Yes. She's a 20th century American photographer. And should I mention the sources? I can please mention your sources. sources. Go for it. So there's a new book that came out this year. So it's so appropriate. So when I started researching Berenice, I found out that there was a new book written, a very big fat book that I've been reading and I adore. It's called Bernice Abbott, A Life in Photography by Julia Von Hoften. Oh, so it was written by a woman too. That's awesome. Oh, yes. Yes. And also there's a great video called Bernice Abbott, A View of the 20th Century. And it's on Ishtar Films and it's by Kay Wheeler and Martha Wheelock. That's weird. They both have wheels, um, but that's 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 bona fide. I <laughs> just noticed have that. Wheels. And I got some from the Paris Review, some from the New York Times, um, some from the website of the International Photography Hall of Fame and Museum. Mm-hmm. Of course, Wikipedia, everybody's favorite go-to, and then another website called Monovisions Black and White Photography Magazine. Let's just ignore a- the fact that my mom is way better researched than Hannah and I ever are. It's, it's called uh, being overprepared when you're very nervous. Okay. So, yeah. You're doing great so okay, far. Okay. So far, so good. <laughs> okay. So this woman is amazing because her, as a photographer, her, accomplish, her accomplishments are wider ranging than anyone in the history of American photography. But nobody, Anyone in the history of American photography. Yes. I would say anyone. And, and that's, that's this, a big statement. I'm not the only one that says this. It's not just me. And... But, however, unlike Ansel Adams, everybody knows him. Yes. But he really didn't do much to make some really lovely pictures. And they're very her, pretty. Yeah, they're very, very beautiful, very uh, technically Lots of landscapes, accomplished. landscapes, right? Landscapes. Yep. But that's – and he – well, let's give him credit. He did He did invent the zone system. He – yeah. Anyway, but well, that's fine. Nobody does black and white much and may not even know what the zone system is, but some of you will. Anyway, but her – nobody knows Bernice. No. But they know Ansel Adams. So um, she uh, and was. And they contemporaries? Yes. Okay. Yes. And anyway, so she was a sculptor. She was a poet. She did, she dabbled in acting. She was a portrait photographer of some of the most important figures in the early 20th century. She was an archivist and historian. What? She was an inventor. She was a documentary photographer. She was an entrepreneur. She was a scientific photographer, an author, and a photographic educator. Then that's total bullshit so she's that, we, like that totally, people don't know her name. She is everywhere. And you've probably seen her work and, and you don't know it. Probably. So I, Lord knows you've taken me to a lot of art museums. I'm surely I've seen. I'm sure. Well, yeah, I'm sure you've seen stuff because she's everywhere around the house. But anyway, because she's my hero. Um, so her early life. Let's talk about her early life. Let's. She was born... Bernie Sabbath, 
1898 in Springfield, Ohio. All right. So her and her sister were raised by her quote-unquote divorced mother, even though she really wasn't divorced. They they divorced. They just separated. And so she had two brothers and a sister. So her mom took the took the girls, and her dad kept the boys. And her, her mom was sort of, um, oh, I forgot how she described her. She was sort of, floozy's not the right word. She was very flirtatious with men and sort of um, shallow in Bernice's eyes. So she didn't want to be like that. Mm. Um, let's see. She didn't like to talk much about her childhood, which she describes as lonely and unhappy. But later in life, she said that her self-reliance, determination, and independence was a result of her lack of supervision. As a child, aha. So she. So if like she a, hadn't had a lonely sort of like motherless existence, then I mean, yeah. she attributes it to yeah, part of she it. Had it to, obviously made her who she was. It made her who she was. It made her stronger. So it's good that she could have that poison into medicine sort of mentality. So um, later, she enrolled at Ohio State University in February 1917, and she was going to study journalism. Uh-huh. And she said, we don't have any, we didn't have any money, but I went anyway. And that's just a typical Bernie sort of quote. And I have many of them because they're right. amazing. Uh, in March of that year, she got her hair bobbed, a move that was symbolic of declaring that she was in the modern century and that she was free. What year was that? This was 1917. So oh, this was pretty ahead of pre-20s. The, yeah. But that was when that movement started happening. Right. But she was like at the beginning of that. Zeitgeist. That's right. And she board. said, having the barber put scissors to my braid was my first ever act of rebellion. Ooh. So, yeah, she's been a rebel all her life. <laughs> Just like Hazel Scott. <laughs> Just like Hazel Scott. Um, so she didn't take photography classes at OSU, even though they were offered. She was actually more interested in aviation. Which what? Was, it was barely a decade old. So it was a brand new thing, but it, she's very fascinated by uh-huh. anything scientific or new technology. When she, However, when she visited OSU's School of Military Aeronautics, which was training pilots for World War I in April of 1917, she was turned away. Because she's a woman? That she, and so she mocked them. So she would say that they said to her, we're not taking any girls. What do you mean by being here? So she dropped, she dropped out of OSU after two years because this was in World War I, and there was right. a lot of um, anti-German sentiment. So her German professor, she had a, a professor that was from Germany. He was dismissed because he was a German teaching English class. So there was like, he was just let go because basically because he was German. Because English wasn't his first language? No, because the, nobody liked Germans. Right. Because of the war. But what was their... Who knows? Okay. But it, she didn't like it, <laughs> no matter bullshit. what it was. Yeah. So anyway, so she left. Weren't you the one who told me that uh, prohibition was in large part due to anti-German sentiment because Germans had a... a they were a, a monopoly on like making beer. Beer, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. There was a huge anti-German sentiment, and that, I, I learned that from uh, Ken Burns' Prohibition ah. documentary, which is applicable since our yeah. family was German immigrants mm-hmm. in that and time. And they probably experienced some of that. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so back to her bobbed hair. Yeah, she said her bobbed hair startled that campus. Hell yeah, quote unquote. And if and this is in quote. Okay. This is me. A few students from the East, quote again, mistook me for a sophisticate because her hair was bobbed. We became friends and a new life began for me. So the East actually, being like the East Coast? East Coast. All right. So basically th- that cutting her hair just started the whole, her path of her life, which is really That's really cool. Yeah. It's very interesting. So her friends on campus were intellectuals who read a great deal. Right. Two of them, Susan Jenkins and James Light, who later married, but they cohabitated unmarried. Ooh. And so that was very scandalous. Risky. They moved to New York City and offered to pay her train fare for her to come out and join them, which I think was $20. And she accepted That's that a offer. Lot of money that back was a then. lot of money back at this time. So when she was 19 years old, she headed to the Columbus train station, left her mother, her roots, and the life she knew to move to New York to be surrounded by people, quote, who were not stifled by the permeating spirit of conformity. So oh, she needed that's... a little bit of excitement. And where, of course, would she land was in Greenwich Village. Of course she did. So in 1918, the village was actually a square mile pocket of narrow lanes 
and old buildings along the Hudson River south of 14th Street. Low rents. Still is that, but yes, high rents. <laughs> high rents, but it was low rents back then, which is usually, you know, what happens. The cultural creatives come in, make it a cool place, and then the rent goes up. But right. anyway, so low rents in the historically African-American neighborhood attracted anti-materialists and artists from all over the United States. Nothing changes. <laughs> So when she was in the village, she fell, fell into what she called the quote-unquote center of everything. It's a, there was a, um, a bar called the Hellhole. Have you heard of this? Is it still there? I don't know. I would love to see. But it was a working class, working class Irish tavern, say that fast three times, where creative people met to mingle. There she met artists and writers such as Eugene O'Neill. Hell yeah. Who wrote The Iceman Cometh and... Uh, you, Harry Ape. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the Dadaist artist Man Ray. Yeah. Uh, Marcel Duchamp. And Ernest Hemingway. Uh, you didn't know it was coming, did no, you? No, I didn't so we know were, it was coming. Yeah, That's so funny. So we're... She was rubbing shoulders with... With all of these guys. It's all coming together, Ma. She also fell into a crowd of, quote, strong, independent women and lesbians, end of quote. So I'm taking that from her. She, okay. Okay. So despite (laughs) the village worship of nonconformity, heterosexual men still felt threatened by these independent women and and or lesbians and clung to the notion that men were superior to women. But they really felt these women were, were headstrong and they were, you know, they did not need men. And these men were very threatened by that. Because no matter how progressive they... Plant, they they professed to be, mm-hmm. they were still um, sexist, basically. Yeah. So, well, yeah. yeah. Welcome to today. Yeah. Well, well hashtag welcome to today. Hashtag welcome um, to today. No, it's the same. It's exactly the same thing. And also just the notion that lumping independent women and lesbians in one group. Yeah. But I think that was very a, con- I mean, of course. But I think there was a quote from Bernice. Of course it is. But it's still a she pervasive was still a, thing. Today, she was a product of her time. Where yeah. it's like if a man hits on you and you're like, no, thanks. I'm like, what are you, a lesbian? You must be a lesbian. Like, yeah. oh, no, I just I'm attracted to literally every penis that comes within my vicinity. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Anyway, she was inspired by these artists to start making art. And because she had studied journalism before, so she well, not... and she was out of the journalism by then, and I think she was she was interested, uh, and she did some. I, I would have to look it up, but she got into a little independent troupe of actors, and she did a little bit of acting when she was there too. She was dabbling, and and she's just a creative person. She's finding her, just a cultural creative, finding her and, identity. Yeah, definitely. So. Um, she was encouraged by these these independent women and these artists, because a lot of them, were, the independent women were also artists, to um, move to Paris because that's when it was happening. It was a jazz age in Paris. They had the Cafe Society. And so she went to Paris and she, and Europe in general, because she studied sculpture at the Académie de, de la Grande Chaumière. Very good, Mom. Very good. I got some tutelage before the before the show, <laughs> and she also went to Berlin, which she really loved, and she studied the after pro- World War One, though. So that's like this was after World War One. But that's oh, Berlin was kind. of, I mean, it was cabaret era, like. But they were they were definitely, very creative and artistic, creative. but it was poor as fuck. There was a creative culture going on, and so she oh, studied yeah. at the Prussian Academy of Arts in Berlin. Ooh. And she was she was a sculptor at the time, and actually she had a, a famous sculpture that got stolen. It's a woman called Woman in a Hoop Skirt. And there's a photograph of the man who owned it and with the sculpture, but no, no one knows where it is. She just says it was stolen, but nobody knows where it is. Weird. So it's somewhere, or maybe it got trashed. Who knows? I wish it would show up in my house. <laughs> yeah. How big is <laughs> At it? At a garage sale down the, the street. Well, it's not very big. Okay. It's, you know, okay. maybe, maybe three feet. Could fit on a table. Foot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a table sculpture. It's beautiful. Um, Okay. So, but this is important. While she was in Paris, she adopted officially the French spelling of her name because it was, she was born B-E-R-N-I-C-E, you know, just just run of the mill. Bernice. But the French spelling is Bernice. Bernice. And it was actually Like with like N-I-E-C-E, like Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. And actually, it was, the first person to spell her name that way was Marcel Duchamp, who she was very good friends but with. But of course. But of course. But of course. <laughs> there you go. We think of the same thing at the same time. Um, 
Yes. So uh, Paris after World War One, like I mentioned, was a time of great individualism and artistic renaissance. And Mm -hmm. there were, you know, lots of lots of creative people there, writers, playwrights, um, um, artists, visual artists, actors, dancers, uh, dancers, Josephine Baker, you've already talked about. So this was during that time. It was during that time. Hell yeah, that's what I was thinking. Um, so her friend from the village, Man Ray. So Man Ray... Um, like that's his name? That is his name. It's not his real name. And Like Man Space Ray? Yeah. Man. First name Man, Man, last name Ray? Or did oh, he, just, he go by Man just, Ray? I really But he's Man Ray. But, he was, but he's known as Man Ray. Okay. And he's a famous photography artist, but he did other things. Yes. I've heard of him. Uh, Probably from you. Sculpture. He did as- assemblages. He he was a Dadaist artist, so they did like put things together. It was like a like a three D collage, you know, assemblage yeah. or whatever. I don't always. And love then they, they would take pictures of of those of those assemblages. Or assemblage. I'm probably not saying it right. So you please, sound fine to me. I don't know, but I may not be. Somebody can correct me and how the pronouncing of that word. But anyway, um, so Man Ray came from New York to Paris after Bernice did. At and, her suggestion? I don't think so. I think he just everybody was. Well, but they were it was friends also, before. And keep in mind that this was during Prohibition. The prohibition was starting, you know, there was a lot going, it was oh. getting harder and harder to get alcohol. So people would go to Paris to drink. So the artists and the young people, I mean, they were coming by the thousands, on shiploads of thousands of young people and right. creative people coming to Paris because they wanted to party, basically, and live, sounds, it was a much freer lifestyle than it was. right you know. to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, go to so the Moulin Rouge. He, he was supporting his art by making portrait, photographic portraits of wealthy how do you say Parisians? People from Parisians? Paris? Parisians? Yeah. Um, so he, but he was complaining that he had an assistant that was a know-it-all, and so she told. So he fired this assistant. Of course, it was a male, and she said, "Why not me? I don't know a thing." And he about said about photography. About photography. Right. And she said at the time, "I would have laid brick. I would have done anything." So at the time, she was really desperate for money. Uh huh. And so she she took him up on that, became his assistant. And fortunately for the rest of the world, she took to photography like a duck to water. Mm. He showed her just a little bit of, of the technical things in the darkroom and how to use a camera, just a very little bit. She learned the rest basically on her own. Of course, very independent, very self-reliant. Yeah. And um, she just did it through trial and error. That's odd. And, well, and, and photography, well, with film... Having grown up in a dark room myself, we we've gone through a lot of changes where like most photographers these days don't use film anymore; it's all digital. Yeah, very. Few. But that's it's like very complicated, like working with the negatives and figuring out the correct exposure mm-hmm. that you want, right? For what you want to, the type of uh, effect that's mm-hmm. desired and all that. It's persnickety. So yeah. to just kind of figure it out. Is, well, it shows that she was highly intelligent. Well, yeah. I mean, needless to say, right. But, and also uh, tenacious yeah. because she stuck with it until she got it Cause, right. Because it can be very tedious. And people, um, photography works well with people who have sort of an organized kind of a scientific mind to For begin sure. with. Yeah. It's a good it, it's a good um, media medium for what I call like a, a neater artist. <laughs> you know, there's a some, neater there, artist. Yeah, I mean, some artists are, are very, um, I don't know, the maybe not quite as organized, a little unkempt, a little More sloppy. like emotionally volatile, yeah, kind yeah, of like, and, Well, and they they just, in terms of how they keep their studio, because they're just too busy focusing. But photographers like for things to be a little more organized. And tidy. Works out well for Virgos, like myself. And, and me. And you. <laughs> and um, anyway, so that's sort of a harbinger yeah. for things yeah. to come. But anyway, um Okay, so after a while, so she started doing, she was started out as his assistant, like developing his roles of film and doing his darkroom work. But after a while, she started taking portraits herself. Like her own clients. Her own, had, had her own clients. And after a while, she became just as important as Man Ray as a portrait photographer. In, the, in Paris. In Paris. Yeah. And, and started having her own clientele. And it caused some friction with Man Ray, needless to say, because now he had competition. Right. So she broke away from him. And started her own portrait studio. Which is interesting. Correct me if I'm wrong, but from from my perception on when I was looking up stuff about Josephine Baker, like the French at the time were much more 
easygoing, like being of a different race or a different gender was not necessarily as much of a hindrance. Like I think if they were both in New York doing this, like he would clearly not have yeah. competition with a female photographer. But it because would they have were been in harder. Paris, it was easier for people. It was respected. much more open-minded. Yeah. Much more free thinking. Sure. And that's why cultural creatives were drawn to Paris. Right. At this time. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Continue. No. It's all good. Um, so she, like I said, she became quite successful as a portrait photographer, and she's got some very famous portraits. Um, there's a beautiful portrait of James Joyce, who was a friend Ooh, of hers. Yeah. Uh, Jean Cocteau. Yeah. Uh, Sylvia Beach, the publisher. Yep. Who published Ulysses. Yeah. And a beautiful, beautiful, one of my favorite portraits of hers is a woman named Janet Flanner, which I'm sure she has some cultural significance, but I can't tell you what that is right now. Okay. So during her Paris days, she saw her first photograph of Atje, Eugene Atje. And he was a poignant figure who sought to provide a comprehensive record of the architecture and streets of turn of the last century Paris. Mm. So this man was a documentary photographer of Paris. And and he sold his photographs. So they were... You know, like people would buy postcards of them or they would buy prints of them. And, yeah. and he really wasn't well known. He was sort of thought of as sort of a, I don't know, well. As well, it he's says a documentarian here. as yeah, opposed to like, I'm an artiste. Yeah, they were he's doing like some a... weird stuff with photography then yeah. where it was, they were trying to make it, like were pictorialists, they were called. And they were making photography that tried, they were trying to, it was very dramatic. They were looking like paintings. Right. And like like uh, neoclassical paintings. Yeah, and yeah, they were yeah. really kind of, I don't know, kind of cheesy. And um, so he was doing straight documenting the most Beautiful prints, just capturing the light of, yeah. of Paris, and it was it was amazing. Um, the city of lights, right? Yes. Ta-da! But she saw his work through Man Ray, and just fell in love with his stuff. Um, said this this quote while most of his fellow artists wrote him off as a joke, Abbott believed that his devotion to realism made him a quote Balzac of the camera. Oh. Yeah. So when he died in 1927, shortly after they met, so what happened was um, she uh, took a, a lovely portrait of him. She met him and, and wanted to do his portrait. And she went back to show him the proofs, and he was gone. Oh. So like it was in a week of his death, she did his portrait. Whoa. Yeah. Um, so when he died in 1927, shortly after they met, she tracked down his executor and purchased the bulk of his enormous archive. Some what? 1,500 glass negatives and 8,000 prints. Okay. She hauled the material back to New York and kept it in her studio on Commerce Street. So that's, you'll see, she was in Paris, and then we're going to switch back because she's, she's going to move back to New York. Got it. She deserves credit for saving his work from oblivion and selling it in the yeah. interest of eternal safekeeping to the Museum of Modern Art. Oh, so that shit's in MoMA now. Yeah. So she compiled it, documented it, and and um, has done has a book. There's, she published a book. Wow. Of all its photographs, and they are absolutely gorgeous. But she saw the value of them when no one else did. Right. And so that's where she became an archivist and a historian. She's a visionary on that yes. front. I mean, she's. Busy, busy, busy lady. Well, it's funny, too, because she had had no training in photography. Then she learned how to be a portrait photographer. And then she now suddenly has an eye for architectural photography as well. Right. Early, and so then early 1929, yep. she went, visited New York City to find an American publisher for Ajay's photographs. Uh-huh. And then she saw that New York was in a transition going from old buildings to building the skyscrapers. Right, 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 right. Yep. And so she really was fascinated by the changing cityscape. So then she decided New York is interesting now. <laughs> you know, and now this, is, this looks like something I could do something with. So she went back to Paris, closed up her studio, and returned to New York. But she was very successful. She came back. She was successful. But she, she liked was, being ahead of the curve and was yeah, like, this had, is where shit's going to happen now. lovely clothes now. You know, she was successful. So she kind of went through these cycles of, like, feast and famine. Right. So it, As it, I think a lot it, of artists do. Yes, exactly. Um, she photo So she started taking pictures in New York. She photographed New York City with a large format camera with the diligence and attention to detail that she had so admired in Eugene Atje. 
So he, she learned by looking at his photographs mm. how she wanted to do her photographs of New York City. With d- giant cameras, right? Like Yes, it in- was um, what, an 8x10 view camera. Which means there was an 8x10, it was like 8x10 sized camera. Yes. So it, the the size of the the negative, which I think was would have been a glass negative at the time, mm-hmm. was eight by ten. So you can get amazing detail. Wow! Incredible detail with with that kind of. It's like you know yeah. having a with a digital camera having a full frame sensor or, or a medium format sensor. You're going to get a lot more pixel information. Well, it was the same, but it was just analog. So oh yeah. So I wanted to. There's a really beautiful description of her taking a photograph. She's had this one photograph, it's called Night View, that is just absolutely, absolutely stunning. So she took it around the solstice. And we'll have, we'll send us links to these absolutely. photos. So we'll put them in the show notes. Everybody has to so see So all this. the stuff that yeah, you're mentioning. Yeah, it's going to be some beautiful stuff. Cool. Yeah. Um, but this is one of her most famous photographs. So what Night she view? did, this is called Night View. And it, it what it is, is um, she went up high in a si- skyscraper. And mind you, she had a fear of heights. And it's just like hanging the camera off the edge. This okay. heavy, big camera. And it just like mortifies me to but, think of it because yeah. I have a fear of heights. But so she she took a picture at that magic hour when it was starting to get dark, but you could, there were still lights on because it was about five o'clock because it was around the solstice. Mm. So it got dark early. Mm. So you could you could still see lights in all of the, the windows of the skyscrapers, but yet it's a dark photo and it's up high. And it's just magical it's just sparkling and magical so here's a description of her taking that photo this is it's twilight in late december 1932 Mm -hmm. thousands of street lights and office windows blaze an electrified concert for a scant half hour between the winter solstice sunset and the lights out five o'clock end of the workers day Um, just weeks earlier after three crushing years of the great depression fear defying fdr had won the presidency by a landslide Ah. Optimism was in the air. High up in the northwest corner of the new Empire State Building, 34-year-old Bernice Abbott aims her bulky wooden view camera at the exuberance below, the glittering, boundless cityscape of midtown Manhattan, diffused just slightly by a sheltering glass window. She opens the shutter and begins a 15-minute exposure. 15 minutes? Yeah, the film was very slow. So it took it took a long time hmm. to to get the light. Slow means that it. But she was holding it steady this whole time, or what? Well, it's on a tripod. Okay. Yeah, and it, apparently she wasn't hanging this one. She wasn't hanging over the edge, but some of the photos she was hanging over the edge. Not her, but the camera, yeah. which would still mortify me. Her triumphant photograph, Night View, New York, will forever sig signal modern metropolis as futuristic to us in the 21st century as it was to Bernice's depression-weary contemporaries. I just love that description so much. Yeah. Ralph Steiner, who was the uh, weekend photography columnist of the daily tabloid PM, okay. wrote, I don't know why it's called PM, but uh, I'm sure it's Maybe something, it Photography Magazine. It's probably Photography Magazine. Who knows? Um, he said that Abbott's work was the greatest collection of photographs of New York City ever made. Oh. There, there were just so many, so many of them. And then something else, let's see. So by the time she resigned, uh, and she did a lot of this work under the Federal Arts Project, which was a Depression-era program to help artists get money. It was under FDR. Oh, imagine. Yeah. And, <laughs> Subsidizing art. Yeah, oh, does that happen? Not anymore. <laughs> uh, very little. It'll come back. Yes. Um, in 1939, she resigned. She had produced 305 photographs that were deposited at the Museum of the City of New York. And, you know, you, that doesn't sound like a lot, 305 photographs. But, but to be picked up by a museum. No. I mean, we're thinking in terms of digital. But when you're, when you're thinking that they're doing one negative at a time, with a view camera. And she did not believe in shooting and shooting and shooting. And that that um, video, the film I told you about, that Ishtar film, she said, had one photographer come to me and say, I just I just took a took 200 photographs. And I said, well, did you get one good one? <laughs> you know, she didn't believe in shooting and shooting and shooting to get it, which she is sort of my philosophy. Right. She would t- slow down, take her time, and, and she would, like, only take two photographs of her subject. Hmm. And that's it. 
Huh. Yeah, so it's a very different than a digital mindset. Yeah. So, um, anyway, so 305 photographs. It's quite a bit. It's a lot of time, especially considering the amount of exposing. Like, if it takes 15 minutes for one yes. exposure. And then you have to develop it, and then you have to get it printed correctly. Because as you remember being photo. in the darkroom, how long it takes to, yeah. you know, by the time you've printed it, get the right exposure, do dodging and burning to get the, the details in, that how long that can take yeah. to get the perfect photo. Although right. I suspect she probably got a good photo pretty pretty early on because she's very attentive to detail. Yeah. Um, so it was also around this time that she met a very important person in her life, Elizabeth McCausland. So this Elizabeth McCausland was an art critic, an art writer, and she was an ardent supporter of Bernice Abbott. Mm. And she wrote lots of articles to support her. And she also contributed to the captions of her Changing New York book. So that was the name of the series of all the New York photos was Changing New York. Oh, oh. And so was... she helped her with that. And she also was, they became life partners. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like. But yeah, so we're, we're moving into to this part of her life. But it was also, she was very private about her, her sexuality and, mm. you know, had a lot of conflicting feelings. You know, even though she hung out with the strong women, quote unquote, and lesbians, she was not very forthcoming with it like um, other, like some of the other writers that became like a big part of their life. Mm. Um, so here, I'll just read this part. When she was in her 30s, she met Elizabeth McCausland, a well-educated critic and historian of American art who became her life partner. Together, they moved to Greenwich Village to the fourth floor of 50 Commerce Street, where they lived in adjacent studio apartments. Mm -hmm. So she still was very independent, and and she was very against marriage, but I think in her mind it was more um, marriage to a man, but I think she still really cherished her privacy. Yeah. But they yeah, yeah. they definitely were together for a long, long time. And, and they also Boston marriage? What? The Boston marriage, where, where it's like two women would be roommates for life, and they're like, oh, yeah, they're just friends and roommates, and it, but they call okay. it a Boston because they were oh, gay. Oh, okay. I never... <laughs> heard that expression, but now I have. Um, so their shared interest also included a devotion to the Communist Party. Well, all right then. Abbott, a fellow traveler, was deemed enough of a national menace for the FBI to start a file on her in 1951. Oh, shit. In characterizing her appearance, agents noted, wears slacks constantly. Oh, no. A woman in pain. <laughs> Had to be a threat. <laughs> her FBI file also pegged her as homosexual. Uh -huh. A fact that Abbott preferred to keep hidden. Unlike her friend Juna Barnes, whose Nightwood, uh, that was written in 1937, remains an early classic of lesbian literature, Abbott was in no hurry to proclaim her sexual predilect predilections or to make art out of them. To the contrary, she developed an aesthetic that refused to acknowledge subjective experience and claim that art should be objective. Interesting. She felt like um, you, the artist should never interject themselves. Now, this is where, you know, I Bernice mean, and I are, she's like like my artistic soulmate in a lot of ways, but I'm an abstract photographer, and I do believe in putting well, myself, I think that it, my emotions, it, because I think the more personal it becomes, yeah. the more universal. But that's but also kind of oxymoronic, because yeah. obviously Bernice Abbott has a style that's very distinctly hers, so she did insert herself into her work, even though well, she didn't make it particularly political but no she... well it's always political it's like where but where's the politics is it on the front burner or on the back burner and hers right. was more on the back burner but no matter what the artist has to choose what the photo photographic artist has to choose what is in that frame right so every person's gonna gonna frame a photograph differently i just happen to crop mine very close but wear it's still slacks all the time wear slacks all the time look out for those women <laughs> women in pants independent women and lesbians <laughs> Anyway, okay, so as the Federal Art Project wound down in 1938, she turned to visualizing 20th century salient modern subject, which was science. She photographed industrial subjects and devised imaging techniques before joining the Physical Science Study Committee, PSSC, based at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. MIT. And this was from 1958 to 1960, but actually before she Wait. went there. So we jumped a lot. Okay, so, okay. But in 19, she started being interested in, in this type of scientific photography, and, and she wrote a letter 
1939 that I think she uses kind of her resume because she was trying to get work as a scientific photographer. And I'd like to read a little of this letter so you can get a sense of of like how she wrote and her her style and how her brain worked. Lay it on me, Mama. So the, this this letter is entitled "Photography and Science." Hmm. She said, "We live in a world made by science, but we we the millions of laymen do not understand or appreciate knowledge which thus controls daily life. Hmm. To obtain wide popular support for science." To that end, we may explore this vast subject even further and bring as yet unexplored areas under control. There needs to be a friendly interpreter between science and the layman. I believe that photography can be this spokesman. (laughs) Photography can be this spokesman, as no other form of expression can be. Hmm. For photography, the art of our time, the mechanical, scientific medium which matches the pace and character of our era, is attuned to the function. There is an essential unity between photography, science's child, and science, the parent. (sighs) Yet so far, the task of photographing scientific subjects and endowing them with popular appeal and scientific correctness has not been mastered, which is true. The function of the artist is needed here, as well as the function of the recorder. Mm. The artist through history has been the spokesman and the conservator of human and spiritual energies and ideas. Hmm. Today, science needs its voice. It needs the vivification. Oh my gosh, vivification <laughs> of the visual image. Vivification of the visual image. That's a great word. I want to use that word more often. Vivification. The warm human quality of imagination added to its austere and stern disciplines. It needs to speak to the people in terms they will understand. They can understand photography preeminently because already people had been bombarded with with photographic images in the newspapers and yeah, you know, yeah. In books. They were already seeing that. People for, who, for who didn't regularly see like paintings or drawings right. or go to the museums, they would see photography. They, they were seeing photography. Mm-hmm. To me, this function of photography seems extraordinarily urgent and exciting. Scientific subject matter may well be the most thrilling of today. <laughs> my hope of moving into this new field comes logically in my own evolution as a photographer. So she wanted to become a scientific photographer. Which yes. What, what, what exactly so, does that mean? That means, again, her being a documentarian. Like she, again, her, her mentoring by Atjay, just, just absorbing Atjay's work. But mm. to accurately, but yet aesthetically, because she also talked about that photographs needed to be photogenic. As she would say, photogenic, I think it's from her time in France. It needs to be photogenic. Uh-huh. Um, but it has to have, have be strong compositionally and yeah. be aesthetic. Yeah. And so she had a strong sense of that, again, from At Jay and, and, and Man Ray to some degree. But she really didn't like art for art's sake. She thought, especially in photography. Which is she exactly what Dadaism is. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, that she had a somewhat disdain for that. Yeah, um, so do I. Not me. I, I, I like art for any sake. Um, so anyway... She then, so she was 40 in 1939. So she was like, you know, she wasn't a young woman anymore. Right. And 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 so I think that's interesting that if, through the decades she kept reinventing herself, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. So um, in 1941, and this letter was written in 39, in 1941 she wrote, she wrote a book on photography called The Guide to Better Photography, and I'm sure she illustrated it herself. So there's the author part, which, and Guide to Better Photography is considered a photographic classic. That's, that's your photo teacher yeah. coming out. But in 1944, <laughs> Science Illustrated hired her as the photographic editor. So she did break into the scientific world. In 1948, she created scientific images for the textbook American High School Biology, which oh. I want to find so bad. I mean, I'm sure a lot of these are from that, but I want that book. And later, the Physical Science Study Committee of Educational Services published a new physics book with the images almost exclusively by Bernie Sabat. She set a new standard for um, the images in physics textbooks that continues through today. So she wow. started the whole new, uh, based on this philosophy that they need to be aesthetic. They need to be something that people can look at and feel attracted to. Right. And But feel like... You know, that helps explain the situation, what's going on. Puts it into a different medium 
to help the brain right click like these concepts click exactly yeah. and that's a perfect um she has a photo that's a classic and you can we're going to put this one on the website um she did a photo of a wrench that was being tossed through the air and you would see like images of wrench wrench and and it's like spinning through the air and what it's demonstrating is um mean it's demonstrating the average let's see there's a science word for that the the center of mass so you can see the center of mass and it is like the perfect description of what center of mass is hmm. um so this she, what she was doing was demonstrating abstract concepts and that they can have a real physical meaning and that's yeah. huge yeah that's really huge um, so some critics believe, like other critics believe the New York work was the most important. Some critics believe her scientific photography is the most important work she ever did. And her appreciation, understanding, and photographic documenting of science is what sets her apart from all the other great photographers of the 20th century. So she had this whole... No and what I love about Bernice is that she used both sides of her brain. Yeah. She is, she's Which a makes whole sense brain for person. You. And I dig that. I dig dug that. I knew you were going to say dig you dug. You knew I was going to say dig I dug. I knew it. Hi, Barry. Um, so, yeah. So, and speaking of another, okay. So, okay, this is, however, in 1960, she was informed that the work at Cambridge at MIT was coming to an end. Her work at Cambridge. Her work. It's like they started saying, oh, the funding was drying up. The, everything's, it's, oh. In 1960? So she did this for almost she's, 20 years. Yeah, she she's like 61 and 60? No. Uh, yeah. Well, you said she was 40 That's and 39. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So she was around 60. Um, she was informed that the work was drying up. She later found out that her assistant, a younger man who she had trained, had now taken over her job as scientific phot photographer. She was crushed, and she it was a very hard part of her life, and she was almost suicidal. She was so Whoa. depressed because they just decided they didn't want her anymore. They wanted to give it to a man that she had trained. Rude. Ageist and sexist. Ageist and sexist. So um, all that's going on. But let's talk <laughs> all that's going on. <laughs> so let's talk about some of her inventions. Okay. She it, she had four to five patented items, but invented a lot of other things. Um, four to she, five patented items, you said? Mm -hmm, okay. She patented. She invented uh, the monopod, which is basically a tripod that just has one leg. And I'm sure um, video guys know about monopods. Benji. But, well, that's Bernice. Bernice, you can thank her for that. Um, so it's just one, and it's easy to move around, and it's it's very convenient yeah. when, when a tripod just isn't going to work. She invented a coat that has 20 pockets in it, so the photographer can put all their gear and not have to carry bags. Probably, you, you love probably those. probably carried those around, too. So that's something she invented. Um, she also invented a mini tripod. So, like, if you just need a little tripod to put on a table, like a tabletop tripod, she was the first person. That is actually what? Un unpatented, but she invented that. Wow. Um, she invented a darkroom easel that is distorts the image. And I don't, that sort of seems out of character for her, but it's it's a weird... Um, huh. I mean, maybe we could put... This is one of her images of, oh. with that easel. It's That's creepy. terrifying. It's creepy. But, yeah. So, anyway, that amongst other things. So, she was just brilliant. Um, and so, so, towards the end of her life, she did a series of, in Maine. or It's called the Route 1 Photography. Mm -hmm. So, she left New York on Route 1, traveled south to Key West, Florida, and back north again concluding the journey in Maine. By the trip's end, she had made 2,400 negatives, which translates roughly into one photograph per mile of the trip. Oh, and so, okay. And that's a, it's a, people know about it, but it's not, some of them are popular, but she's basically documenting the automobile culture that, that was in the 50s, that everything, like there were, were roadside stands, and there were, you know, you drive your car in, get a hamburger, and somebody comes out on roller skates, and just all kinds of, of car it's related very americana culture. very americana it's it's really beautiful work mm. oh okay she detested being corralled in the subclass of woman anything yet ah. her youthful androgynous energy still earned her the epi epithet girl photographer when she was past 40 past 40 yeah she was that's bullshit <laughs> she was also a sentimental friend of the helpless both human and four-legged 
Throughout her life, she was attracted to down-and-out father figures. A communist sympathizer long after the Stalin-Hitler pact, she was surprised and saddened by the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, the last year of her life. Oh, she was alive for a long-ass time. Yes, she, she was. In fact, she died in 1991 at the age of 93. So she lived by her, sort of her credo, respect for science and nature, truth, common sense, and the pursuit of knowledge. And so I've, I, she has some great quotes that I would love to share. Okay. Because some of them are just amazing. Bring and it she on. She just had this sort of Midwestern sort of forthrightness just up front. Tell it like it is. And she said, the only pleasure you can get from creating something is the pleasure you have in doing it. It, that pleasure cannot be taken away from you. It cannot be crushed. Which, as a, as a performing artist, you know. But visual yeah, but artists tend to get very hung up in the product. But it's really the act of making it. Okay, here's another one. I mean, it's, it, I think it falls in both. Like, you have Perhaps. to enjoy the, the journey. The, right. The, doing the work itself. And then, because uh, of course, performing artists also are very hung up on what people think of the is, final product. And there is a final product. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, here's another one. I'd rather do my art than prostitute myself and make money. So that's why she went through these feast and famine cycles. But she hung out with rich people, especially in the 20s. Who oh. would, but she would, they, they would buy dinners for her and they would let her, you know. Right. But then when she was on her own, she was hungry. And yeah. So, yeah. Um, all photographs are documentary. Or it isn't photography, which that makes sense uh, for her. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess not for yeah, you. Not for me. I'm a yeah, but I'm not a pictorialist. Remember, they were they were pictorialists doing weird things back then. I'm just happened to be an abstract, macro oriented photographer. So um, she said, talking about New York, but in general, the city is very interesting. Everything in it has been built by man. It expresses people more than people themselves. Oh, which is true because you can see even in this neighborhood, you can see, you can see generations of people. Yeah, you can, but right rather than just this generation. Right. So I, For I love sure. that quote. I love that quote. Um, and this, this is this is the best. So we'll end on this one for Bernice. I think the last thing the world really wants is independent women. I don't think they like independent women much. Just why I don't know, but I don't care. <laughs> And that is my precious Bernie Sabbath. And I hope you love her as much as I do. I do. I she, is, she is way a badass. She is all about badassery. All about badassery, that Bernie Sabbath. Yes. Well, dang, Mom. That's probably the, the best researched episode of Good Witches and Bitches that's ever existed. <laughs> that's, that's what nerves will do for you. I, nerves and, and time, because sometimes we get... Oh, and that's... Because we have more frequent... Just how I roll. But that was awesome. Thank, Thank you, you for that. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, Thank you very much. I'm the one who has the On This Day in History... So Sounds good. <laughs> September 19th, 1796, George Washington's farewell address is printed across America as an open letter to the public. Wow. Which, you know, we hear a, a huge excerpt from in Hamilton. That's right. Sung by Chris Jackson. Who we love. We do love Chris. Chris, if you're listening, I so want to shake your hand. He's not. <laughs> you don't know that. He's hugged me. I would like to hug him. (laughs) He's a very sweet man. Um, 1881, September 19th. U.S. President James A. Garfield dies of wounds suffered on a July 2nd shooting. That's a long time to be suffering from those wounds if he was shot July 2nd and he died September 19th. That's horrible. Ouch. That's horrifying. Vice President Chester A. Arthur becomes president upon Garfield's death. Hmm. Which is, then they got really, like, panicked and paranoid about people at open gatherings like people who would come yeah because anarch it was he was shot by an anarchist if i'm not wrong and it's like a whole plot point in the musical ragtime oh where people are panicked we were talking about ragtime like yeah. last week um and so one of the characters dies because they're like she's got a gun oh no and anyway mm. spoiler alert september 19th 1893 in New Zealand, the Electoral Act of 1893 is consented to by the governor giving all women in New Zealand the right to vote. What year? 1893. Oh, wow. Way were, before America. Way before us. Just Decades. before Bernice was born. Right. 
September 19th, 1995, the Washington Post and the New York Times publish the Unabomber's Manifesto. Oh, that, what a time. What a time. Uh, the first Tea Party member. So, <laughs> the first Tea Party <laughs> member. <laughs> oh, zing. Um, let's do some birthdays. There's some really cool people whose birthday it is today. Yay, Virgo. Yay, Virgos. It's toward the end of the Virgodom. But uh, 1948, Jeremy Irons. Happy birthday, oh, Jeremy yay, Irons. Oh, Jeremy. Yep. Uh, 1949, Twiggy. Yay, Twiggy. Happy birthday, Twiggy. Happy birthday, Twiggy, if you're 1960, uh, this is not a yay one, but Yolanda Saldivar, who is the woman who murdered Selena. Oh, yeah, that's right. I remember she's and my she's age. in she's yeah. in prison still, and she's eligible for parole in twenty twenty five, which can we not? Um, yeah. Actually, it would probably be bad for her because <laughs> there are a lot of people lot who of people want her dead. Take her out. Yeah, yeah. So it's probably within she's her safer. best interest to stay in to prison. Stay in prison. Uh huh. Uh, 1964, Patrick Marber was born. Um, he's one of my absolute favorite playwrights and screenwriters. Mm. Um, he wrote the movie Closer, which is a super depressing movie that came out. It was a play first. And, and then it was a movie. And then it was a movie. I hate that movie. Yeah, it's depressing Oh, my fun. God. But Ugh. it's a great play. I would love to be in the play actually playing the role of Anna, who's a photographer. Was was that? Julia Roberts. Oh. In the movie. Okay. Which whatever. Yep, 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 yep. Whatever you take for that. that casting. This one's just for you, Mom. I wouldn't have included it, but you're here. So uh, happy birthday to Jimmy Fallon, who was born in 1974 on September 19th. Aw, Jimmy. Yeah. Happy birthday, Jimmy, if you're listening. <laughs> I think everybody's listening. Everybody should be listening. Everybody should be listening. <laughs> That's uh, And this one's just for me. I don't think you'll even know this. Uh, 1980, September 19th, it's the birthday of Tegan and Sarah, who's their Canadian... Uh, singer songwriter twins and both lesbians wonderful it's great music i'll play you some teen and right. sarah so happy birthday teen and sarah it makes happy sense birthday, that they're Virgos. And sarah. um and then uh one death that i thought was noteworthy september 19 1692 giles Corey, american farmer and accused warlock during the salem witch trials Ooh. So he was one of the ones crushed under a bunch of stones. Bunch of stones, big slab. Mm-hmm. And he never, he never confessed. I believe. If I, I well, was, he he was the guy. Yeah, he said, "I'm I'm not gonna lie." I'm, right. I mean, he's like, I didn't do anything wrong, and they just kept piling the stones on and until, until he, he couldn't died. breathe anymore. Yep. But that's history, or more history, I guess, for you for September nineteenth. Excellent. Do you have something that you want to talk about that you're excited about? I'm very excited that um, my favorite person in the world, my daughter Deanna, <laughs> is turning thirty. On, oh, but that she, you will have already turned thirty by the time this show drops. But yeah, next Sunday, which will be September sixteenth, and she will be with me. I will be with you. In Colorado. So, in yes, Colorado. I'm, I'm super, super stoked about that. And it's the 30th anniversary of your becoming a mother. Yeah. Because I'm your firstborn and onlyborn. Yep. You are the alpha and the omega. Alpha and the omega, bitch. 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 That's it. What is it? Is it episode 30? What? what? <laughs> episode 30. Um, <laughs> that's right, it is. You can sing that. <laughs> I like that. I'm 30 years old. I'm 30. <laughs> I can and kick, I can kick and, and I stretch. stretch. I'm 30. I'm 30. <laughs> Sometimes I do feel that old lady body <laughs> kicking in. Well, what's funny, I don't have an audio version of this, but I do have, and I haven't written it in it in a while, but I have this diary that I got on my 13th birthday that I wrote in pretty consistently back then. And then I would like find it, read it, and then write something else. And it's basically become like letters to my future self. Oh, wow. Which is, it's fascinating because, and I acknowledge this in one of my entries where it's like, I listen to it, listen to it, I read it. and In your uh, head listening. Yeah, right, listening in my head. And I, I, knowing that it's future me reading it, I write to myself as if, I know that I'm going to look at this as silly. Like I'm going to be like, oh, I thought I was so grown up then. Or I thought oh, that yeah. I was so sure of X, Y, and Z. And and now I'm definitely not. And, you know, the older you get, the less sure you be. You become more sure of certain things and less sure of a lot of others. Yeah. Things that you have very hard, strong opinions on when you're 16 
I suddenly no longer have hard, strong opinions. Thank goodness. Uh, right? Because, you know, 16-year-olds love them, but... But they're they, dumb. They can be. Yeah. yeah. And this is the, the last episode where you hear my voice of me in my 20s. What? Whoa. Mind blown. Trippy. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Hopefully I'll stop going, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, or maybe not. Uh, uh, maybe not. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I mean, the thing is, my current phase of life has a lot of challenges. A lot of really wonderful things, too, but it has a lot of challenges, and I'm really figuring out the person I want to be as an adult. Because, you mm -hmm. know, your 20s are for exploring that. And I think that, I mean, you never have to stop growing, changing, learning or whatever, but I think you kind of become more sure of who you are in your 30s. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. But it, honestly, when I really locked in who I was and what my values were was when I turned 50. Ah. So, so yeah. I've got plenty but, of time. But you're not as on steep of a climb. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, in your 20s, you're all over the place. Your 30s, you're kind of start getting locked in. The road is narrower. Mm. But something happened. And it probably, you know, and I'm still tweaking it. It's it never You never stop tweaking it. But something clicked when I was 50. And it's like, I'm glad I was, I've been stupid for 50 years, but I'm not going <laughs> to be stupid anymore. Yeah. I, I don't, and I maybe that'll make sense to you one day. But it's just like I was clear as a bell who, what my values were, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. not that I didn't have values before. No, 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 no. I, but I, it, I can't but, explain it. It's yeah. just sort of a feeling. It's like, oh, I would never do that again. Okay, I'm done. Yeah, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Yeah, like lessons learned and yeah, yeah, and hard knocks. Yeah, it's a hard knock life. Hey, look, that's where I get the singing. <laughs> yeah. There oh, it yeah. is. It comes in the, uh, we come from a, a family of singing women. It all st started with Granny, God rest her soul, oh, who yeah. was not a good singer, but we loved her songs anyway. She was not a good singer, but she sang all the time anyway. All the time. And there's something beautiful in that. Yeah. You sing for the learned. love of, of the song, the, the love of the voice. Right. Well, because when you were turning 30, you already had a toddler. Mm -hmm. And I'm not anywhere near that. I was, I was mean, married I'm yeah. with the top homeowner with the child. What a different time we live in. Yes. We were talking about that earlier, too. That yeah. it's, it's just harder for you guys to put down roots and, yeah. And, and stabilize in the same sort of milestones. The, those type of milestones, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, and the, some of the it's mark of better, adulthood though. is Some is of it's different. better. I'm glad that people are having kids later. Yeah. Because that gives you more time to figure out who you are before you decide to bring a person into the world. And, you know, and you're more stable before emotionally, financially, yeah. before you bring a person into the world. And they need that stability. I think stability. the emotional stability is one of the big things. That's the big one. But financial is important, too. Financial is very important. But I mean, just like if I think about myself at 23 and, and the, like being a mom, like, of course, I'm going to scar have, my child because I'm not yeah. an adult. Yet, no, not really. No, I was. I am, but I was I'm not. too self-absorbed. Well, but having a kid kind of pushed you out of it when you. No, I was ready to have a kid by twenty-eight. Yeah, I love you, mommy. I love you too, baby. <laughs> this is fun. All right. So, um, thanks for listening to our special edition episode. This is Hannah's territory. Usually, she's the yeah. sign off. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Um, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. Tell your friends to listen. Um, we've been getting a lot of really good word of mouth lately. I think we're going to get some more scientist listeners because mom's been telling people she's going to do an episode, which I think our regular listeners don't even know. So they have some inside scoop. Um, and yeah, you can find us on all social media, at GWBB podcast, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and you can email us your stories, GWBB podcast at gmail.com. That's always super fun. And, uh, Yeah. On that note, we'll be back with you next week. Not me. No. Hannah will be back. Hannah will be back. But thank you for inviting do me. Do you want to do Hannah's sign off? Peace out, witches. Bye. Bye. <laughs> I feel weird saying it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can't say Oh, I was ready for peace out, witches. Peace out, witches. You were ready to, to take the mantle and then give it back to Hannah. Yes. It's, it's her thing. It's not my thing, but I'm, I love it. Bye, 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 bye. Bye. <laughs>
<laughs> Thank you for listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you for listening. <laughs> you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Blueberry, and more. Basically anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Mm -hmm. If you like our podcast, it would be really helpful if you could please like and subscribe, rate and review, share with your friends on social media, word of mouth, mm -hmm. all of that. It's great. Yes, and you can find us on Twitter at GWBB Podcast. Instagram is the same, and we are on Facebook under Good Witches, Bad Bitches Podcast. And hey, guess what? If you want to hear all of our episodes, they are all up at our website, GWBBPodcast.com. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to share with us and that you want us to share on our podcast at some point, you can email us at GWBBPodcast at gmail.com. Hey guys, you know what? If you like what you hear, maybe please consider a little bit of supporting us financially by visiting our tip jar. Um, the link is in the show notes. Every little bit helps. It just kind of makes it so that we can keep this going so that it has some longevity. So just think about it. See, see how you feel about it. Or you can support this podcast directly by buying us a coffee on our Ko-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> so that is ko-fi.com slash GWBB podcast. Um, coffee start at $3 because that's generally the price of a fancy coffee and it just helps us keep the ship going. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is produced by Moon Bounce and powered by Pine Cast. Boom, boom, boom. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for listening.